You're listening to Object of Sound from Sonos, the show where we bring you in tune with the music that shapes our culture. When music lives in the air, it's one thing. But when you know the undercurrents and the ideas that went into a song, when you can feel its weight, it becomes more meaningful. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib, a poet and culture critic, and I'll be your guide as we seek a deeper way of listening. So undeniably, I am getting older. And as I get older, some of the bands I loved when I was younger also get older. This is how linear time works, though our relationship with linear time has been somewhat upended in the past few years. As I get older and as those bands get older, I become interested and invested in watching how bands age, not really physically, but emotionally, lyrically, creatively Aging as a person, aging as a band, aging in the world can be an uncomfortable thing. And so it's been interesting to me to watch a lot of the bands I love asking themselves questions about how to push themselves creatively after they've been around for 15, 20, 30 plus years. How to kind of grow alongside their audiences and how to meet the expectations of the fans who were there from the very beginning while also drawing in new ones. One band who I think has done a great job of growing up and growing alongside both their fans and imbuing their music with the sound and concerns of growing older is Death Cab for Cutie. put out their first studio album in 1998. It's called Something About Airplanes. But I first fell in love with Death Cab when I heard the album We Have the Facts and We're Voting Yes. Which came out in 2000. I was a sophomore in high school when it came out. I loved the writing. I loved the kind of tongue-in-cheek playfulness of it. And their music came to mean a lot to me. Transatlanticism, which some would call their landmark album, came out in 2003. This is fact, not fiction, for the first time in years. Which was a fall where I was really struggling with the kind of in-between phase of not being very interested in college, but, you know, being um, called into adulthood. And... That album particularly uh, made me feel like I could happily float in the in-between of nothingness for a while. And I'll never forget when Plans came out in late August of 2005. That album just carried me out of summer and through the autumn. This is a group that I really feel has grown up alongside me, meeting me often at the exact frequency I need them to, including with their 10th studio album, 
Asphalt Meadows, which came out on September 16th. Kiss was a lonely prayer When you slipped it into my mouth Closed my eyes and held it in Then I exhaled it out And for me, it is an album that is um, kind of experimental for the band. It has this sort of um, post-punk resonance to it. It has this uh, like sparseness to it that I think really serves an elevation of the writing, the lyrical writing. And it just kind of reflects these concerns of longing and loss and fear. And um, that, to me, signals a group of people who are self-aware about the passage of time as I have increasingly become self-aware about the passage of time. And so this week on the show, I'm talking to Ben Gibbard, the guitarist and singer of Death Cab for Cutie. I'm excited to talk to Ben about the new album and the fairly unusual methodology the band used to write a lot of the songs on it, which helped them find their way in a new creative territory. Ben is also someone who's really thoughtful about the power music has to transport you back to a certain place or a certain time in your life. I've already done that at least three times in this intro, talking about how Death Cab for Cutie albums transported me backwards and how nostalgia, when built into a portal, can be a useful thing. And then I'll guide you through a playlist of songs about getting older in all forms, getting physically older, getting emotionally older, that transition, the bridge between adolescence and adulthood however long it takes for some of us or some of us takes longer than others for me it took uh longer than i would like it to but i'm here now and so you'll hear those songs at the end of the episode you can hear that over on sonos radio at radio.sonos.com or in the sonos app we'll also leave a link in the show notes without further ado here's my conversation with ben gibbard hey ben how you doing Good, man. How you doing? Good, good. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, you as well. So I I want to ask you about the songwriting methodology that went into the new record, because I know or I've read that the band kind of experimented with a new method of songwriting, and I'm interested in hearing about that process, particularly because you all have been a band for so long. And sometimes introducing any new processes can be kind of disruptive, but I think the results of it are, are, are stunning. And so I'm interested to hear how that process came to life and what that process looked like. Yeah. So, you know, everything shut down March of 2020. And when we kind of realized we were going to be here for a while, um, I came up with this methodology and the methodology was there's five days in a traditional work week, Monday through Friday. And we would create an order of the five of us that was completely out of logical order. It would start with, say, Nick, our bass player on Monday, would write a bass line or something, you know, with a drum machine and then upload it to a Dropbox. And then on Tuesday, let's say Zach, our keyboard player, pulls it down. He just kind of first thought, best thought, adds stuff to it, you know, uploads it. I pull it down Wednesday. I'm adding guitar or anything else and writing lyrics and melodies. Thursday, I, I, you know, I upload it Thursday. Dave pulls it down. He adds guitar or whatever he adds. Friday, McGurr, our drummer, Jason, um, he pulls it down, adds drums, and then mixes it. And then we all get to hear the final song. But the rules of this particular kind of game of telephone was that you only had 24 hours to turn it around. And that when you had the music, you had complete editorial control. So 
on Friday, everybody hears the thing that started on Monday and it might be completely different than the thing we started with on Monday. And for the most part, it was very, it was fairly ego free. Nobody, nobody was like, Hey man, that was the greatest thing I ever wrote. How did, how come you took out my guitar part or something like that? It was just, it was one of the more collaborative experiences I've ever had making music. Right. And when the, when the dust settled, I think just less than half of the record was constructed with that methodology. Right. Do you think, and I know you can't speak for the for the whole band, but do you think that kind of egolessness is learned? I mean, I just, that process is so fascinating to me because it requires a complete surrender to the greater good of the music. And um, I don't know, <laughs> to be frank and also gentle, I just don't know of many bands who have um, a collective understanding that every member is, is, on board with that level of surrender in part because, you know, creating and sharing is just sensitive business. Was there any kind of conversation about learning the practice of that surrender or did it just come naturally to y'all at this point? Well, I don't think we could have done this in 2001, you know, right? like I think it's the now decade, two decades and a half of being a band and being dudes in our mid forties, that has stripped away a lot of the, for at least speaking for myself, the insecurities of what my role in the band is, the things I didn't want to give up at the time, at, at, at earlier points in the band. Um, I, w- I wouldn't have allowed this to happen in 2001 or 2002. But it, I found for us at this point in this band's lineage that we were all pulling in the same direction. There wasn't, uh, no, no, no one in particular was asserting themselves on their instrument set in a way that was taking away from the task at hand, which was trying to write the best songs that we could. He said he'd driven all the way across America. And when he got to the edge, there was nowhere left to go. I'm fascinated by Fox Love through the clear cut, which is one of the songs on the new album. And I'm especially fascinated by the story of that song coming to life, which is that it's a song that was rediscovered or at least the frame of it was rediscovered. Yeah. I have a big box of four track tapes uh, in my studio kind of tucked away. And for those who might not know what a four track is, which is wild that, you know, I'm old enough that I have to explain kind of shit like this, but, um, you know, it, it was, it was a, it is slash was a home piece of home recording equipment that would take a standard cassette that has stereo left and right on side A and side B and would run all four tracks in the same direction. So you could multi-track on it. And it was before GarageBand, Pro Tools, Logic. This is what most people use to demo their songs. And this is what I used. Um, and so I had, pulled this box of four track tapes out and I came across this instrumental piece of music that I remember recording in like 1998. And uh, it was ostensibly like the drum pattern, the bass line, and one of the guitar parts for what would become Fox Club through the clear cut. And I kind of was listening to it and being like, man, like I really love this. And I just kind of had the idea of like, why don't I just loop four bars of it and I'll write on top of that and just see if anything kind of comes out of it. And maybe because it was recorded in 1998 and I was obsessed with Slint and shipping news and 
you know, all that kind of Louisville stuff and Chicago kind of post-rock, I just decided to do a recitation instead of a, a, a melody. He said that nothing lives long, only the earth and the mountains. As he quoted Black Kettle's death song. The words drifting off into the emptiness of this great land where we've never belonged. And... I liked it, but it wasn't, I, it just seemed like it was maybe a little too esoteric for the band. But as it started filtering into the demo, you know, Dropbox with all the other songs, the guys were like, no, that's, we should work on that. That's really interesting. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then as we kind of started going out to producers, people started focusing on that song. I started to realize like, well, actually, maybe this thing is better than I than I think it is. I just hear the influences in it to such an extent that it was hard for me to kind of delineate it from what I knew I was trying to steal, you know, was it, um, you know, as a writer, I find myself when I am confronted by my past work, there's a sort of recoil. And I know that that is because to be confronted with one's past work in in a language form is perhaps different than in an audio form or any other form. Um, I don't know. I feel like I often have to fight the, the, the lie of telling myself this old thing I created is unworthy of the present era, which is like rarely ever true. Right. It's, but did you ever have to confront that through the process of re reimagining this for the present? Uh, not really because it didn't have any words or melody. Right. It was instrumental. So it wasn't cringy. I, I tend to be more cringy over old lyrics. Right. Similar to you. It's, it's the words. It's what I chose to write about how I chose to write about it. And we were playing this song on the last tour called 405 from We Have the Facts and We're Voting yeah. Yes. And it was a song I wrote when I was 20. As we're performing it, I'm back in my 20-year-old self. I see the person who it's about. I remember the whole scene like it was yesterday. It's like, it's comforting, but also a little bit alarming to kind of time travel every night like that. (laughs) Yes. You know, performing that song and singing those lyrics, they're lyrics that were written by a 20-year-old, you know, and they have the emotional intelligence of a 20-year-old. But I'm also playing that next to a song that we wrote, you know, in the last year of my life in my mid 40s. So it's it's a very it's it's kind of throughout the course of a set. It's very interesting to kind of revisit these versions of yourself from different eras in your life. What really made me feel full in listening to this album was that it was an album of just like evolution and growth and not just sonically and not just lyrically or structurally. But it is also an album that reflects a band that is getting older. I think of a track like Here to Forever. In every movie I watch from the 50s, there's only one thought that swirls around my head now. And that's that everyone there on the screen, yeah, everyone there on the screen, well, they're all dead now. They're all dead now. I know um, 
that for a lot of bands at this point, it can be just like a nostalgia circuit where you can play your album from 2003 and people will come out and hear it and be transported back. But what I found myself craving as I've gotten older and have confronted adulthood, quote unquote, in whatever range that means, is it's been good for me to hear bands who have an affection for their past work, but in their new work also show a range of shifting concerns. Aging in, in a sense, not just in terms of linear time, but aging in terms of wisdom and enduring the world, who don't treat that as something to be ashamed of or shy away from. Do you feel yourself and your music growing alongside the ever-shifting audience? Uh, or do you think that you as a writer have to reflect the realities of your your present self to the best of your ability? Well, I think one of the the best things about being a musician, songwriter, being in a band is that we get to live alongside our albums and our work for the, for the entirety of our career, if we choose to do so. I mean, you know, it's like, that's not something that, that people who write novels do. Actors don't go and do their character from 30 years ago. Like they don't go out and do it on a talk show or something like that. You know, it's like, but we get to perform this music, some of which, as I was saying earlier, was written when I was 20 years old. Yeah. And I'd like to think that all of our records exist in the space that I was at that point in my life and that I was writing honestly about where I was in my life at that time. And I think that we probably more than most bands are, are very willing participants in our back catalog. We we recognize that music is how we time travel. You know, when I hear pictures of you by The Cure, I'm immediately 13 years old again. Like I'm 13 years old and I'm living in the suburbs of DC and we're about to move back to Seattle and I don't want to go. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about being a musician and, and performing, you know, uh, a career worth of material is that you can see people in the audience kind of almost leave their bodies and enter an earlier time in their life. I have this very distinct memory when I was home from college and I my dad was playing me the Free William Bob Dylan for the first time. If you're traveling in the North Country Fire. And I'd heard songs on it, but I'd never really sat down and listened to it. And he was like, he put it on. He was like, no, you got to listen to this record. And we just sat there and listened to it. And it got to a uh, girl from the North Country. Remember me to one who lives there. For she once was a true lover man. I remember he had his hand in front of his face and his eyes were closed. He was listening to the song and I knew he was thinking about a woman that wasn't my mom, you know? Yeah. And it was this wow. like powerful moment of like, they didn't know each other at this point when this record was out, right? He's thinking about someone else. It was this early memory of mine that music is a, is a time machine. It transports us back to a different time. And I think that if you've participated in that, if you've been that in someone's life, you have a responsibility to at least keep some of that material alive in the live setting for people so that they can travel back to different periods in their life. I mean, I certainly as a music fan get very upset when I go to a show and it's an hour 
into the set before somebody plays something that is even not on the new record, you know? Right, right. That's frustrating, you know? To turn towards Yoko Ono briefly, I, I'm I'm so excited and kind of um, fascinated by Ocean Child. This is a Yoko Ono tribute album you curated and produced, and I'm interested in it in part because early in the pandemic, I did kind of this really deep revisit of Yoko Ono's first like four records, and those two, the two back to back, the um, approximately infinite universe and feeling the space, which is to me a brilliant run of songs. I'm a battleship frozen by my mother's anger anchored in the North Pole Sea I'm a sphinx stamped on the Hilton poster hoping to see the desert I'm interested to hear what drew you to the music of Yoko Ono and in your desire to kind of reshape it and make something new out of it. Well, I, maybe 20 years ago, I was in a record store in Seattle and I came across Feeling the Space by Yoko Ono. And uh, and I was like, you know, I'll, I'll buy, I'll check this out. I took it home and put it on the turntable and it was, was kind of expecting the avant-garde, challenging side of Yoko Ono's music that most people assume is the entirety of her work, you know? And it drops into growing pain and I was just like kind of just turn and it was like what she's singing and the lyrics are just really evocative and I mean this is so lush and orchestrated and it, I was just totally blown away because it wasn't what I was expecting at all over the years I would have conversations with people who were very dismissive of her music and it's like oh man just all that yeah just the really the just the kind of like the shrieking and the da 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 da, da and you know, and I, I made some converts here and there. But going into the pandemic, we were starting this project where I had reached out via our management to uh, David Newgarden, who manages Yoko Ono, and kind of pitched this idea. We started going out to people, and I, you know, made as many personal kind of asks as I, as I could. We went out to people through management, and the final track list ended up being fairly different than the one that I envisioned, but in so many ways, now I can't imagine it being anything else, you know? And when one of the, the, the later ads was, was David Byrne, who had just heard about the project and had like emailed me, I mean, he didn't have my email. He got my email somehow and was like, hey, I heard about this project. I'd love to be a part of it. I'm like, holy shit. I'm trying to be cool. I'm like writing emails back to him, trying to be, it's like, hello, David. Yes, we, we, we do have some room. We, if you, yeah, we'd love, you know, trying to be very, very kind of like I'm, I'm proofreading my emails and everything. Yeah, yep. And uh, yeah, and it just, it's its a project that I'm incredibly proud of. And I'm, you know, my goal going into it was like, look, if if a hundred Japanese breakfast fans pick this thing up or hear her version, uh, you know, of a Yoko song and then go deeper into the Yoko Ono catalog and find something to love in there, then it's mission accomplished. <laughs> 
I loved it for that. I mean, I loved, I loved it as a, a generous tribute to an artist who I think is misunderstood because a lot of people who do not listen to her music have thoughts on her. But I also loved it because a tribute album is, you know, I think about early tribute albums that I heard in the 80s and the, the, the early 90s that like bought me to bands, you know, or like punk tributes that bought me to punk bands. So it's a real service. Um before before I let you go, I do want to ask about the orchestral maneuvers in Dark Shirt because people can't see it, uh, but it is a wonderful OMD shirt. And this is serendipitous, perhaps, because maybe like a year ago, I had maybe tweeted something or put something on Instagram like, you know, my favorite band name of all time is maybe OMD's name, but I just can't get into the albums. And it's just really hard thing for me. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear from you what you admire or adore about their songs, because I'm still trying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who's because I love music and I listen to music so regularly, I'm never out on a band. I'm never fully out on a band. You know, I'm always like, if enough people tell me there's something in this band, I'm going to hear it. I'm going to, it's going to click for me. And so I'm wondering from you, if there is a specific orchestral maneuvers in the dark album, or if there's just something about their songwriting or song craft that you adore. Yeah, well, I'll talk about three of their albums. If uh, <laughs> okay, the first record that I would start with with OMD would probably be Dazzle Ships. Dazzle Ships is an album that is so rooted in kind of craft work fan fiction. You know, craft work created this instrument set that became the basis for, for all intents and purposes, electronic music moving forward in the next almost fifty years at this point. And I love Dazzle Shifts because they are still very rooted in the arty esotericness of some of the elements of craft work, but they're also trying to write pop songs. The second record that I love by them is Architecture and Morality. Um, and this record doesn't have any of like the, the well-known singles, but to me, it's kind of the beginning of OMD starting to shed the overt craftworkiness of their music. Yeah, that's the one that starts with the new Stone Age, right? Is that the opening mm-hmm. track? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that record. And then they made a record in 2013 called English Electric which there are many great songs in it, but there's a song called Helen of Troy, which I just, I absolutely adore. And we've been trying to find ways to cover it for years. One of the many reasons I love that record is because they chose to make an overtly OMD record, like just the most OMD record possible. And one of the most difficult things for any artist, I think, of any discipline moving forward is how do you maintain a connection to what is signature in your work while also pushing things forward? And, you know, as I get older, there's a little voice in my head that starts asking the question, how long are you going to do this? How long can you do this? Is there a point where this becomes ridiculous? Is there an age at which you know, spinning a guitar around on stage and and singing into a microphone becomes silly or embarrassing. 
And in the spring, my wife and I saw OMD here in Seattle at the Moore Theater, where it's like these guys are now in their 60s, early 60s. And they performed as if there was nowhere else in the world they would rather have been. I really needed to see that. I needed to see these guys get up there and put on a show that illustrated how important their music was to themselves and also that they recognized how important their music was to the people who chose to pay to hear them play it. They were the ones controlling the knobs in the time machine. Every once in a while you need a reminder, I need a reminder that this is my life's work. This is what I do. Ben Gibbard, thank you so much for talking. What a wonderful conversation. Uh, Asphalt Meadows is out now. It is wonderful. And I hope uh, everyone gets to spend some time with it. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you. That was Ben Gibbard, singer and guitarist of the band Death Cab for Cutie. And now for a final thought. I was so fascinated by Ben's description of how music can be a time machine, the way it can throw you right back in time. And there's a few songs that do it for me, but one in particular is Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It. When I hear that song, it puts me right back into the summer of 1995. This doesn't really happen in this city much anymore because, um, you know, the, the city shut them down due to kind of these false concerns of, of violence. But when I grew up in, like, the black neighborhoods on my block, there used to be block parties. Black elders in the neighborhood and black young folks would take to the streets and music would play and there'd be food. There were basketball tournaments like the Gusmacker. And there was just kind of, like, one big middle-of-summer block party that happened on kind of the threshold that brings you into the east side of Columbus. And I remember the one that happened in 1995 because Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It was big in the summer of 1995. The single itself came out in the winter, but no one really knew about it until it got warm. Because when it got warm, DJs would play it at parties or people would play it coming out of cars. And so I remember the block party in 1995 on the east side of Columbus, Ohio, where Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It was played by the DJ 10 times in a row because people just kept asking for it and people kept like demanding it. And I remember being a kid. I was at that point, I had to be 11 years old and there was... uh, a building of sorts and I remember climbing the steps to the building my brother and I had maybe separated from my parents I went up the steps to the building which meant that I could look down a little bit on the block party and I just remember watching this cluster of beautiful black people become organized as we do sometimes into this really cohesive dance that just kept going on for It was like pushing up against 40 minutes of people just dancing in sync joyfully. And I know that song has become one of those songs that is like a, I don't know, like a nostalgia punchline. But every time I hear it, it transports me immediately back to sitting atop those steps and watching people dance. 
And uh, for me, that's as beautiful as any other memory I could be transported back to. I mean, there are songs that transport me back to, to times where I've been incredibly in love. There are songs that transport me back to times where I've been incredibly overjoyed. There are songs that transport me back to the freedom of having my first car. But that song is uh, maybe one of my great earliest memories. And anytime I hear it, I'm right back there. And I hope that, you know, if you have a song that does that for you, it comes straight to mind. But if you don't, I would really encourage you to put on an old album that you loved when you were a kid or a teenager and just see what happens. Because sometimes I think because there's so much music and for those of us who love music, which if you listen to the show, I assume you do, uh, music can overwhelm and take over our lives in such a way that we kind of forget those things that pull us back. You know, they become archived and and uh, it's good every now and then, I think, to uh, be reminded. This has been Object of Sound from Sonos. Thank you to our guest this week, Ben Gibbert. To hear all the music in the full version of this show, listen on Sonos Radio at radio.sonos.com or in the Sonos app. If you like what you hear, go ahead and rate it and share it with your friends. This is a communal thing, music discovery. So tell us what you like about the show and what you're listening to. Let us know your thoughts in an email at objectofsound@sonos.com. You can follow the show at Object of Sound on Instagram. This show is produced by Work by Work. Scott Newman, Gemma Rose Brown, Kathleen Ottinger, Rhiannon Corby, and by me, Hanif Abdurraqib. The show is mixed by Sam Baer. Extra gratitude to Joe Dawson and Saida Blount at Sonos. I'm always talking about music online on Instagram and Twitter at Neef Muhammad. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for being a part of the show.